Yes, so rather than a, uh, a modern interpretation of the parable, we have a, a poem this morning. The poem's called True Riches. The snare of money, stronger than the human will, deceives the heart with promises it can't fulfill. The urge to gather, store, and hoard conceals itself as right reward and wealth hard won. So, what should be an instrument of grace becomes a tyrant master in God's place, as mammon feeds our human greed, disguising want as rightful needs, an all-consuming one. But heaven's riches lie in servant guise, to give away love's greater prize. Abundant life, the rich reward in serving Jesus Christ our Lord, the Father's righteous one. So look to be an instrument of grace, his hands and feet with human face. Seek first to see, serve our neighbor's needs and put aside our selfish greed in following his son. Lord, I pray for Steve as he comes to give us this week's parable and interpretation of it. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless him and us as we listen carefully with our ears and with our hearts. Amen. Well, last week we and today we are looking at two very unusual, if not uh, controversial, parables that Jesus told. And these parables are only found in Luke's Gospel and in Luke chapter 16. Now, last week, for those of you who were around, we wrestled on the morning with the, the parable of the, the shrewd or the streetwise manager uh, who was commended uh, for his dishonest actions by his boss, which has caused some people to suggest that Jesus was actually endorsing or condoning dishonesty. Uh, there's a bit of an echo going on here, guys. Thanks. Um, the, the, the teaching of that parable obviously didn't teach that uh, Jesus was teaching uh, dis being dishonest at all. But um, the parable boiled down to one essential challenge, and that was use your worldly wealth wisely. Uh, use it for the purposes of God's kingdom. Use it for serving others in Christ's name. Use it to feed the poor, to educate the illiterate. Use it in sending missionaries who will share the message of Christ to places that you will never go. And... Uh, one day, as Jesus said in that parable last week that we looked at, when you get to heaven, you will be welcomed not only by Jesus himself, good, well done, good and faithful servant, but by all those people whose lives that you have helped to transform through you, you using your worldly wealth wisely. We're told in verse 14 of this chapter, chapter 16 of Luke, that the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. Now they could sneer and scoff all they wanted, but Jesus, Jesus wasn't done with them just yet. They were going to get some more of the same. And that's really where this morning's parable comes in, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So we were going to read together from Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came 
and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from, where, from here to, to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I told you it was a difficult parable. The first thing I think that we need to notice here is the obvious link, this parable and the parable that we uh, studied together last week, the parable of the, of the shrewd or streetwise uh, manager. Both parables in Luke chapter 16 start with the words, there was a rich man. There was a rich man, verse 1 and verse 19. And when Luke got round to organizing and arranging these stories in his gospel, I believe that that was not a coincidence, that was deliberate by him, that we are meant to see the link between those two parables. But before we get inside and try to understand what this parable means for us today, I think it would be good for us this morning just to walk through this parable and to understand what's going on in it. The story can be uh, divided up into three sections. We are told of two lives in verses 19 to 21, two destinies, verses 22 to 23, and two requests in verse 24 to 31. So let's walk through this uh, together this morning. First of all, two lives. We are given the details, contrasting details of these two men. First of all, there was this rich man. It says that he was clothed in purple and fine linen. And that kind of description is the kind of robes, uh, kind of robes that a high priest would wear. Professor William Barclay says that these robes would cost in the region of 1,000 times as much as a laborer's daily wage. The purple dye uh, would come from the murex shellfish, and you could only get one drop of dye, purple dye, from each shellfish. So as you can well imagine, to have these purple clothes was extremely expensive. Only the most extremely rich people could afford it. In fact, the purple was called purple or imperial purple. We're told that this man lived in luxury every, every day. Now, in a country and at the time when it, people were seen as fortunate if they ate meat more than once a week, 
here, and, and after that is after toiling for six days. This man seemed to just live in great plenty and self-indulgence. So that's the rich man. Outside his gate, we are told, was laid a beggar whose name was Lazarus. Now, I don't want you to get confused here. This is not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead, the brother of Mary and Martha. This is just, just a character in the story, which in, in itself is a little unusual because this is the only character in any of Jesus' parables that is given a name. And it's caused some confusion. Some people believe that Jesus was actually speaking of a, a real-life person here. That is not the case. It's just a character in the name of, uh, with the name of Lazarus in the story of Jesus. And I believe that he is given a name for a reason. And that is to add to the impact of this story. Lazarus means God is my help. And as we see in this story, this poor unfortunate guy had help from no one. But as the story unfolds, we see that God is his help. We're also told that uh, Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. He was a, a, a man who was a crippled man. And uh, others just laid him there in the daytime to beg. Actually, the Greek word, because uh, Luke wrote his... Uh, gospel in ancient Greek language, the Greek word for laid is the word balo, which actually means dumped. Doesn't that tell us something here? So that this guy was dumped at the rich man's gate day after day. Uh, it tells us that he wasn't placed carefully. He wasn't sort of put comfortable for the day. He didn't have his pillows plumped. He was dumped like a sack of garbage indicating what others thought of him, that he was of no value to them, that he was worthless. We're also told in our reading that he was covered with ulcerated sores and he was so helpless that he couldn't even ward off the dogs who came to lick his sores. My word, what a, what a picture there. Uh, enough to put us off our dinner, isn't it, really? And when you read here of the word dogs, you know, please don't think of a, a little French poodle called Trixabel. <laughs> but what, what Jesus is talking about here are wild dogs, flea-infested, disease-ridden scavengers. We're also told that he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Now, in those days, people didn't eat with knives and forks and have napkins. Food was eaten by hand. And in very wealthy houses, hands were cleaned, not by wet wipes, they hadn't been invented yet, but they were cleaned by using slabs of bread. And then they were thrown away. And that is what Lazarus was waiting for. He and, along with the wild dogs, were waiting for the garbage to be put out. It's a wonderful picture that we are being given here. Let's move on. Two destinies. Verse 22. Well, both men died. And we are told that Lazarus, the, the poor beggar, is transported to glory. The words that Jesus actually used, that he was taken by angels to Abraham's side, which is a particularly Jewish way of referring to the blessedness beyond the grave, to, to paradise. Now, Abraham, as you will know, along with Moses, that is, Abraham was the main man. He was the main man for Jewish people. He was the, the father of the nation of Israel. He was seen as a friend of God. He was seen as the, the father of the faithful. And here, 
Lazarus, this poor, ulcerated beggar, was now in the presence of Abraham, the greatest of the Old Testament saints. And that detail would have upset the, the Pharisees no end. Because you see, they believed that people like Lazarus, they were the scum of the earth. They were people who were cursed by God. They also believed that people like the rich man, they must be under the blessing of God because they have so much. And the same kind of thinking we find in the minds of the disciples when Jesus was asked in John chapter 9 concerning a man who was born blind. Do you remember what the disciples asked Jesus on that occasion? Who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said that neither was true. But these things had come for the glory of God. And that was a common way that uh, people looked at things and particularly the, the, the Pharisees. Now, sadly, that kind of thinking is still around in some parts of the church. Uh, and certainly with some of the American televangelists preaching the so-called prosperity gospel, where a Cadillac-driving multimillionaire is often thought of as someone who is blessed by God, and a sick person, according to their theology, is someone who must have done something wrong, either not having enough faith to be healed, or perhaps having some kind of sin in their lives. That's bad theology, it really is. And the way that the Pharisees saw life, it was turned on its head totally by Jesus in this story. Lazarus, the poor beggar, was the one who was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man was the one who landed up in Hades. Now, in, at this particular time in Jewish history, Hades was viewed as the place where the, the dead go for the final judgment. In the Old Testament, it wasn't called Hades. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. In the Old Testament, it was Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. You might also read it in your Bibles as um, uh, the grave or even death. It was a kind of dark, shadowy underworld. But in the New Testament, that equivalent is, is Hades, the, the Greek word for the Hebrew Sheol. Now, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was about 400 years in all, there was a development in thinking in, about this, this place, Sheol or Hades, because it was thought of as having two compartments. That is the top compartment where the righteous went, and the bottom compartment where the wicked went. So the illustration that Jesus is using here was well known in Jewish thinking at that time. And you may be scratching your head and thinking, what on earth is this all about, Steve? This is, this, this is a bit odd. It is a bit odd to us. Because we are living 2,000 years after the event in a culture which wasn't the culture of Jesus. But it's very, very important to note something. And let, let, let me just sort of tell you this. We are not meant to gain an understanding of the afterlife from this story. That is absolutely important for us to understand that. It was just a popular folk tale that Jesus used, one that was known, in order to get an important message across. 
And what's more, there were several other similar versions of this story that were going around in the ancient world. They were similar to this story, but not the same. And if you're interested in reading a little bit more about this, I, I wrote a short essay on this a few years ago. <laughs> it's uh, 92,000 words. <laughs> and uh, Julie says that she recommends it as a cure for insomnia. Okay, what I'm doing here, folks, is just trying to get us to understand that this culture and these stories are not our stories, and therefore it's, uh, it's a little bit more difficult for us. Let's move on, and we'll explain some of this a bit more later on. So we've had a look at the two lives, the two destinies, and the two requests in verse 24 to 31. We're told that the rich man was in Hades, and he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham with Lazarus at his side. Verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Notice the request there, send Lazarus. This guy, this rich guy, still saw himself as superior and Lazarus as inferior. And it's interesting to note that during his life, he would not have gone within 50 yards of Lazarus downwind with all of his putrefying sores and rotting flesh. But now he asks Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. Jesus certainly knows how to tell a story, doesn't he? He really does. And I can well imagine people of his time just, just on the edge, just listening to this story, hanging on to every word. And I can well imagine as well the Pharisees spitting feathers they were probably very angry because this story was not only the opposite of what they taught and believed, Jesus was telling the story against them. Verse 25, Abram's response, but Abram replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from, from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Again, we find the complete reversal of what went on during their time in earth. Uh, during their earthly life, the rich man chose not to go to suffering Lazarus at his gate, and in the afterlife, Lazarus couldn't go to the suffering man in Hades. And then the rich man in desperation makes a second request, asking that Lazarus be sent to his five brothers to warn them to, to mend, their, mend their ways. Although the rich man had no compassion or desire to help Lazarus during his life, it seems as if he had some kind of pity towards his own flesh and blood. But again, that request is refused. As Abraham says, that if they'd not listened to Moses and the prophets they won't listen to someone coming back from the dead. I'll come back to that in a few moments' time. I heard a, a, a very amusing story this week of something that happened in a small Midwestern college in the USA. The, the college invited some of its final year students to be used on their publicity material to promote the college to prospective uh, students. And a few students uh, from the final year were asked to provide a photograph, what they majored in, uh, their expectation for the future, 
and their favorite life verse from the scriptures. And there was one very disgruntled student. Uh, he gave his life verse as Luke 16, 27 and 28. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for they have five brothers. Let them warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. <laughs> <coughs> I've been told that this is a true story. The magazine uh, editor didn't catch that, and neither did the faculty advisor, and it got printed, much to the anger of the, the faculty. But what does this, this parable mean? What are the legitimate lessons for us as Christians? What did Jesus mean when he taught this parable? Now, the usual evangelical conservative interpretation goes something like this. This parable teaches that we need to make sure that we turn to Christ during our time on earth, as it will be too late after we die. For there is no opportunity for repentance afterwards as there is this unbridgeable chasm between heaven and hell. Now, that's the message that many people will get out of this particular parable. And I've heard that preached on many, many occasions over the years. But can I give you some reasons why I don't believe that that is the lesson that we should get from this parable? First of all, nowhere in this parable does it say that Lazarus was virtuous and holy let alone being a Christian. doesn't say it anywhere in this parable. And yet he gets into paradise. For all we know, Lazarus might have spent his entire life disobeying the commandments of God. The only thing for sure that we know in this parable, as Jesus told it, the only thing we know about Lazarus, he was poor. That's it. Similarly with the rich man. He's not spoken of as being a wicked man. He's not referred to being antagonistic to the Christian faith. He's not being referred to as a, an unbeliever. The only thing that we are told about this, this man was that he was rich. Nothing else, nothing more. And I suppose there's an inference here that he could have done something more than he did to help Lazarus at his gate, but we're not explicitly told that. Okay. If that's the case... We cannot claim that this parable is all about Lazarus being a Christian and the rich man being an unbeliever who land up in different places, places of blessing and places of, of um, uh, suffering in the afterlife, whether it's called paradise and Hades or heaven and hell. That is really to mess around with the details that Jesus has given in this story. Yet that is the way that this parable is most often interpreted by Christians. Secondly, if this parable was a picture somehow of the afterlife, then are we to believe that communication is possible between these two places? That is, someone who is in heaven can look into hell and view the suffering and vice versa. Someone who is held to look into the wonderful time, the party time that the saints are having in heaven. I doubt it. You see, if there was such a window between these two places, heaven and hell, then those in heaven could look through and see the torment of the other place. Then I don't think it would be too much of a joyous place in heaven, would you? I don't think it would be heaven. To tell you the truth, I don't think much of God's architectural design to have done that. 
You see, for me, it's bad enough to watch the adverts from Save the Children on television with some malnourished child from some war-torn part of the world uh, pitifully looking at me when I'm eating my cheese on toast for supper. Imagine having to watch the intense suffering of people in hell from heaven. That would be infinitely worse. There's one more thing. And that is, if this parable is supposed to represent what happens immediately after death, then why are Lazarus and the rich man depicted as having physical bodies? For most Christians believe that following death, our soul goes on to be with the Lord and our body goes back to the earth. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I have pronounced that many, many, hundreds of times perhaps over the years at funeral services. One day we will all receive new bodies, but that's not yet, not yet. The bodily resurrection will happen when Christ returns at the final judgment. Now, sorry, there's a lot of stuff here that I'm throwing you away this morning. I hope I haven't confused you too much. But all I am saying is that for the reasons I've just given, I cannot believe that what we are being taught here in this parable is some kind of picture of what the afterlife is like. All I am saying is that that is not what it's about. But yet, that is the way that most Christians interpret this passage. So what is this parable about then? What are the three, three rules of interpretation? You remember them, don't you? Context, context, context. And whenever we're reading the scriptures, we need to place things in context because we can make the Bible say anything we want it to do. And the context, the historical context, what was happening in history at this time, the literal context of where does this fit, what's before it in the scriptures, what's coming after it. And this is where it's so important to see what's around this scripture. You see, in Luke chapter 16, uh, the first parable, the one that we looked at last week, is all about our need to use worldly wealth wisely. And Jesus offers an attractive opportunity for us to make friends of us, for ourselves with our wealth so that one day we will be welcomed by them when we get to heaven. That is followed by verse 14, which says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus, which is then followed by this second parable. And as I mentioned earlier, two parables, they begin with the same words, there was a rich man. Now, if nothing else, that should alert us to the possibility that there's a continued theme going on here. You see, the focus of the first story is on the use or misuse of worldly wealth. And I believe that that is exactly what is going on in the second story as well, of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man did not use his worldly wealth when he had the opportunity, but rather he lived a selfish, self-indulgent life he didn't notice Lazarus at his gate. He just accepted him as part of the landscape. He didn't feel any pity for this guy, any grief. He did nothing. His sin was the sin of omission, the fact that he did nothing. Now, the parable, or any parable, the power of a parable lies in its emotional impact, um, which is very much like a joke, I suppose. You know, if I asked you what constitutes a good joke, what, what would constitute a good joke? Punchline. Punchline, yes. 
would I be wrong in saying something that makes you laugh? That's a good joke, yeah? You know, something that you don't need to think too hard about, but something that touches deep down inside an automatic response. The moment you try to dissect a, a joke and break it down into its constituent parts and analyze why something might be funny or not funny, then it's gone. You've ruined the joke, yeah? You either get it or you don't. You need to understand the points of reference. For example, it would be no good me telling you some blonde jokes if you didn't understand, forgive me all you blondes, I'm not saying this, okay, it's not me. <laughs> if you didn't, yes, some of them are just, if you didn't understand that blondes are meant to be, um, <laughs> cerebrally challenged. <laughs> I know it's not true. And similarly, it would be no good me telling you a Scottish joke if you didn't know Scots are supposed to be, and again, how, how do I put this? Um, careful with their money. What's the difference between a Scotsman and a tightrope? A tightrope sometimes gives. See what I mean? I'm proving, I'm proving the point here. I'm proving the point. So too with the parable. Jesus knew the points of reference. Now, maybe we are left this morning scratching our heads saying, what on earth is this all about? This doesn't make an awful lot of sense to us. How do we get our heads around this? And the reason for that is we are separated from this story by 2,000 years and also 2,000 miles. And I've needed to be working quite hard this morning in order to explain these points of reference. But in some respects, it's a little bit trying to explain a joke. When the disciples heard this story for the first time, they got it. They felt its power. Jesus didn't need to explain it to them. The rich man didn't care for the poor man at his gate, and he got what he deserved. He got his just desserts. Immediately, they were being challenged... <coughs> to use their worldly wealth wisely for the purposes of God's kingdom. They were challenged not to be like that guy. Don't just look after yourself. Look out for others. Love your neighbor. Do good to others. There's coming a day of judgment. And in that day, God himself will redress the balances of this world. I love Tom Wright's, uh, Bishop Tom Wright's uh, words in his book, Surprised by Hope, where he writes, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and indeed the trees of the fields to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance and oppression, the thought that there might be coming a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world of rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Now this man, this rich man, tries to save his five living brothers who from the same fate by requesting that Lazarus be sent to them. Surely they would sort their lives out, he thinks, 
if someone came back from the dead and tells them, and Abraham says no, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they would not listen to someone who rises from the dead. Well, what did he mean by that? Listens to Moses and the prophets. He was speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. Because as many of you know, the first five books in the Old Testament are called the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. They are the books of Moses. Then you know, throughout the uh, Old Testament, you have major prophets and minor prophets. It's another way of speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. There's quite some irony in these words as well. Because by the time that Luke wrote this gospel, Jesus had risen from the dead and had given many proofs that he was alive and yet the religious leaders still refused to believe in him. But this rich man and his siblings had God's instructions. But what did Moses and the prophets have to say to these five brothers? Well, lots of things, actually. Let me put some of them on screen. Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. That's what Moses and the prophets had to say. Isaiah 58 verses 6 and 7. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? It's what's found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There was one commentator who said this and I thought it was a great quote. If they can be inhuman with the Bible in their hands and Lazarus at their gate, no revelation of the splendors of, of heaven or the anguish of hell will ever make them anything else. And 2,000 years on, the, the challenge remains for us as well. In many respects, we have the Bible in our hands. And through the world's media, we also have Lazarus at our gate. Not actually in our gate, at our gate, but we actually have Lazarus in our living rooms. And our wealth can take the gospel and to make a difference where we might not be able to go ourselves. It can feed the hungry. It can educate the unschooled. It can cause God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you have food to eat every day, and if you own a pair of shoes... And if you have a roof over your heads, then you are rich in comparison to the rest of the world. And if you have a car or even a bicycle, then you are very, very rich in comparison to the rest of the world. Western Europe is one of the wealthiest parts of the world. And therefore, we have less excuse than the rich man. And modern media... 24-hour news, the internet, social media, makes us increasingly aware of global poverty. Can I ask this morning a, a hard-hitting question, I suppose, is who is your Lazarus? 
Who is the beggar at our gate? Do we have eyes to see what's happening in the world, in our town, in our community, in our street? Do we walk through life without ever wanting to get our hands dirty? Do we have compassion for the, the lost, the least, and the lonely in society? And I know the answer to most of those questions for most of you because in some respects this morning, I'm preaching to the converted in this, that Tamworth Elim Church and the people who make up this, this wonderful church, I know that you have such incredibly big hearts for the poor, for the disenfranchised, for the vulnerable, for the marginalized, for the orphan, for the widow. You know, through Food Bank, for example, 106 tons of food have been given away to those who need it in the last six years. Through working with and supporting the winter night shelter, providing bed and food and friendship to rough sleepers. Through working with the isolated and the lonely of our town through such things as prime time and our coffee shop ministry. In our overseas work through helping fund Jackie's work in Malawi. Through funding orphans in India through CFI. And in past years through having involvement in a host of other projects like Isabelo in Zambia, the orphanage in Honduras, work in Mozambique and many others. You are so incredibly generous. You have such a heart to reach out to the persecuted church. I know Karina came up just to mention Christmas cards. That's one small thing. But in many ways, you have supported well beyond that with financial giving as well to those who are struggling in various parts of the world. And as I look around this morning, you know, there are shoe boxes all over the place here. Shoe boxes filled with gifts for children in third world countries. Gifts that will bring just a little bit of joy in the place of sadness. Bring a shaft of light where there is darkness. It's not going to change the world. You know, a shoe box is not going to change the world. But it will bring a smile and some happiness to children who have nothing. Bring a little bit more of heaven into this world in which we live. And I just want us as a church fellowship to carry on as we're doing, but also not to grow complacent or over-familiar with those things, not to allow our hearts to be hardened at all in any way, but pray that we might continue to see other people as Jesus sees them. Let me put this verse back on screen, Micah 6, verse 8, and we'll finish with that this morning. And what does the Lord require of you? What's the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen.